1: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who do not identify as either, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Y'all are funny. Last week's episode, I started talking about moving to Atlanta again, and many of you wrote in, was like, mm mm, mm mm, that's not the move you want to make. Stay right in LA where you are safe and secure. Because your biggest concern is barking dogs. You can't handle Atlanta right now. And I was like, what is going on in Atlanta? So all weekend, folks have been sending me emails and videos and news stories about the lawlessness that's happening in Atlanta. Now, I know I told y'all I was going to lay off Atlanta if they got the two senators elected. And I have done that for like a good six months. I ain't had nary a bad word to say about Atlanta. But Atlanta? What's going on y'all? Let's talk about it. Cause my own sister who lives in Atlanta hit me up and was like, don't you move here? She told me that she doesn't leave her house after dark. She was like, I get home at 7 PM and I stay right in the house until daylight. And I was like, is Atlanta that crazy? I heard about the cars getting stolen. I heard about the water boys. I saw video of that. Like Teenagers jumping on people's car at the light. And I was like, oh no, oh no, oh no. I thought those were like very isolated incidents. And they were like, no, that's a daily occurrence. I was like, oh. With the videos and the news clips that I got this weekend, Atlanta, Atlanta. This woman sent me a video clip. It was people in their 20s. I don't know if it was a club let out or a festival ended, but it was like hundreds of people in the street. Some guy who had a yellow snake. That he was letting other people wear the snake. He was recording like the chaos of like all these hundreds of people like milling about in the street. And there was a fight that was about to pop off. And this guy was pulling an assault rifle, a big ass gun. But he pulled that out a duffel bag. And his boy was stopping him from spraying the crowd. And I was like, oh, no. And dude on the video was like, "Uh uh-uh, we got to go. But I was like, woo, child, no. No, 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 That's, that's a lot. So I made this joke and I was like, well, you know, I might just have to move to Atlanta and go live with the white people in Buckhead, which is a bizarre thing to do to move to a black city and go live around white people. But I was like, you know, if the chaos is where the black folks are and they were like, girl, this video is Buckhead. What? Somebody sent me a news story about a security officer being shot at Lenox Mall, which is also in Buckhead. Two 15 year olds have been arrested. And I was like, yo, they're shooting up the mall. And they were like, girl, that mall gets shot up every other week. They've been shooting at Linux. What? I used to go to Atlanta and, I mean, this is 20 years ago, so a lot can change. But Linux used to be the sexy mall. Like, you would go to Linux and, you know, see and be seen and everyone would be dressed to the nines and looking cute. And if you were really cute, had some coin or at least wanted to stunt like you did, you would go across the way to Phipps Plaza. It was, like, sexy and safe. But the video with the big-ass gun, they were like, girl, that's right by the Houston's. I was like, whoa, I know where that is. That's a good area they like it was atlanta's wild my boy was down in atlanta i'm not gonna name the restaurant because it's black owned and i want it to thrive but my boy went down to atlanta he had his auntie and his godmother with him at breakfast and he was like a fight broke out in the restaurant somebody stole on the server then the bartender jumped over and joined in the melee he was like it was an all-out fight he was like i'm trying to gather my auntie and my godmother she said, where are we going? And he said, we getting out the way. We getting to the side. She said, we need to get out of here. These motherfuckers going to start shooting. And I ain't got my piece. <laughs> I was like, is that what it is? Old ladies? I don't want to call her an old lady. Mature women? Because I believe she's in her 60s or so. It's was like, mature women are, are carrying their pieces again? In the city? That's no good. What y'all doing, Atlanta? what y'all doing? I might have to stay here with this barking ass dog. I don't know if you can hear him in the background. I got the little audio thing that's supposed to help the dogs. I'm about to send this shit back because that dog is still barking. I had it set up for 24 hours. It's a little bit better, but, but Sparky over there is just going goddamn crazy. I suppose that that's my biggest complaint in life that I really have no complaints, but still the neighbors before them were quiet. And now somebody's hammering either next door or upstairs. I can't. I, this place. Oh, my God. Moving along. We have some good black news this week. Tia Williams, the author of Seven Days in June. We talked about her Friday because she would hit the New York Times bestsellers list. And then she also has a film starring Gabrielle Union coming out on Netflix. But also on Friday, after I finished taping the episode, you know, I tape on Thursday nights. It was announced that seven days in June will also be adapted for the small screen by Will Packer. We like Will Packer here. He's acquired the film and television rights to seven days in June. So his production company is going to adapt Tia's novel for the small screen. I am so proud and happy for her. I've known Tia forever and a day. She's an absolutely lovely woman. And I love when really good things happen to really, really good people. So congratulations again. I feel like I'm congratulating her on every episode. I, I love to do it. Keep the good news coming. I'm super, super happy for you, sis. This isn't good black news. This ain't even you no know, black news. Jeffrey Tubin, Do you remember him? I knew him as a legal analyst for CNN, but he also had a job at the New Yorker for like ever in a day. I want to say he worked there for like over 20 years, maybe closer to 30. But <laughs> last October... We were all heavy in the midst of COVID. He was on a Zoom meeting with his colleagues from the New Yorker. And his version is they were on a break, but we're supposed to come back. And he got comfortable. He whipped out his dick and started masturbating. And he didn't realize that his camera was still on. So his coworkers saw him beating his dick. which I was like, sir, that, that's a lot. So the New Yorker fired him and CNN let him go. But they brought him back. Over the weekend, he did this bizarre interview as part of his welcome back to CNN. It was like, well, you know, let's just address what happened. So he says that, you know, he whipped out his dick, but he didn't think other people could see him. And again, he believed his camera to be off. So in this interview, he does apologize. He says, I'm sorry to the people who read my work and who watched me on CNN who thought I was a better person than this. And so you know, I got a lot to rebuild, but I feel very privileged and very lucky that I'm going to be able to do that. He says that he has spent miserable months off air and that he has been trying to be a better person. He mentioned he'd been to therapy and that he'd been doing community service. He's also writing a book about the Oklahoma City bombing. And I was like, that's a lot to throw in to your apology for getting caught masturbating on Zoom by your coworkers. It's one thing if it's a social call. But work? And I get it. You know, folks feel the urge at all different times of day. But like, sir, on Zoom, you couldn't double check, triple check to make sure that camera was off? He added that he's trying to be the kind of person that people can trust again. You know me. I'm all like, you know, there's grace for those that seek it. And, and I totally don't feel that someone should... Never be able to work or support themselves again because they've made a bad decision. It's not like this is murder. But Jesus, whipping out your dick on Zoom doesn't qualify as creating a, a hostile work environment or, or sexual harassment. Or I mean, he did it at the New Yorker and not at CNN, but I don't know. Like That just looks a little hazy to me. Like, we're supposed to be, quote-unquote, supposed, allegedly, quote-unquote, in a post Me Too era where we're doing better by women and we're supposed to be protecting them in the workplace? This doesn't quite feel like protection to me. Is there no other chief legal analyst that can provide what he did to CNN? Like, is he really the right person to bring back? That seems a little shady to me. You dealing with this and the Chris Cuomo shit? I mean, journalists don't always have integrity. I say that as one. But, like, y'all, y'all could do a little better than this. And you know I'm a huge fan of CNN. Like, my dad said something once. He was like, whenever you talk about the news, you always talk about CNN. Like, it's CNN, CNN, CNN. Because I love CNN. I don't watch it like I used to, but I'm a huge fan of CNN. But even as a huge fan of CNN, y'all starting to look a little shaky over there. Like, I gave the Chris Cuomo thing a good pass because I was like, look, he's not talking about his brother. He shouldn't be expected to talk about his brother because it's his brother. Clearly, there's a conflict of interest. He's a lawyer. He's giving his brother advice. That doesn't surprise me. I didn't think that needed to be made a big deal about that, but other people did. And rightfully so. We talked about this, how folks pointed out and they were like, well, you know, he's advising his brother. His brother is making decisions based on that advice. And then CNN is covering it as news, which means Chris Cuomo is influencing the news that CNN covers. Fair argument. And still, I was like, I'm giving a pass because it's his brother. But now y'all reinstating the dude who whipped his dick out on a work call? That's a lot. Then it took forever for them to fire Rick Santorum after he said Native Americans didn't contribute to American culture. The land we live on, self-included, that's all Native American land. You gonna talk about they didn't contribute? Y'all took their land. That's a hell of a contribution. CNN is, y'all, y'all looking a little, y'all looking a little not right over there right now i don't know what y'all i don't don't know about the choices i don't know about the choices some other choices this has nothing to do with cnn meg the stallion has a new video called thought shit i watched it on youtube the morning it came out you know i love meg happy meg won a grammy love meg no issues with meg the video was too much for me it was too much And I'm not saying ban Meg. I'm not saying take the video down. I'm not saying Meg should change. I'm not saying Meg should do anything that Meg doesn't feel like doing. I'm saying for me personally, the video was too much. Between the excessive twerking and then the pussy mouth at the end, I know she was presenting a critique about the right wing or men in general, old white men, a critique of them policing women's bodies. Black women's bodies enjoying the same shit that they constantly complain about. I get it. I get the overall message that she was trying to send. I respect the message. The video was too much for me. And I say for me, who grew up on Luke videos and the video for all I want to do is zoom, my zoom, 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 and your boom, boom. And still, too much for me. The WAP video wasn't too much for me. This new Meg video, too much. it, It was just too much. And I was like, oh. Okay, this is where I acknowledge I'm an old, and this is where I tap out. I remember being like, I don't know, maybe like 10 or 12 or something. My mom was probably like, I don't know, late 30s, early 40s. And I was asking her about something. And I was like, you don't know who, whatever the artist for whatever song I was really into. And I was like, you don't know who XYZ is? And my mother, with so much disdain, was like, no, no. And I was like, oh my God, mom, how could you not know? Everyone knows who blah, blah, blah is. And my mother just completely did not care and was completely uninterested and was satisfied in not being interested. And I was like, oh, I've reached that point. I'm not the core demo for this music. It's not for me. And I don't care about knowing more about it. I don't care about not understanding it. I don't really care whatsoever. And I was like, you know what? I'm good with like all the music before 2010. Filth included. But I was like, this new brand of entertainment? And I was like, no, this is where I tap out. Again, all the best for Meg. Don't change a damn thing. I'm leaving. I don't want you to change. I'm just going to exit right here. I'm going to get off and drive the main roads. I'm good. What else is going on? So much. The Heights. We talked about the Heights last week. I was super, super excited for it. I still haven't watched it. It's Tribeca Festival right now. I spent most of my weekend watching random documentaries, which y'all know I'm like a nerd. So I was in heaven. But last week I was very, very excited for The Heights. And I was like, you know, I watched like the first 10 minutes and it's so good and I'm so into it. And I can't wait to watch more. And I, and I talked about the diversity of it because in the 10 minutes that I'd watched... I saw Corey Hawkins. I didn't realize he was playing a black American and not a black Latino. I just assumed in the Heights that he was playing a black Latino, but okay. But I saw Corey Hawkins, who's visibly brown. And then I saw the dance sequence in the street. And there were tons of people of all different colors and sizes. And I was like, okay, this bodes well. There was a scene in a Dominican beauty salon, and it was women of all shapes and hues. And I was like, great. It looks like a little bit of everybody is being represented. Very exciting. And I think I commented and I was like, you know, it looks diverse. This is good. For folks who saw the film, they were like, nah, nah, ain't enough diversity. This is some bullshit. And I was like, wait, what? I saw this video interview with John Chu. He's the director of the film. He was also the director for Crazy Rich Agents. And he did an interview with The Root. The journalist asked him on camera, so you can't say that the quotes were taken out of context. She asked him, essentially, where are all the dark-skinned people? Because if you go up to Washington Heights, it's a little bit of everybody, but it's visibly black. There are visibly brown and black people that are missing from this film. Like, where do black people at? Chu said... And I'm like, is there a script for this? Because I feel like this is the same thing white people say when they get called to task. Chu, who was Asian, he said, quote, when we were looking for the cast, we tried to get people who were best for the roles. So y'all had auditions. Y'all had access to like all of this Latino talent and you couldn't find nobody dark skin for a lead role? No one? Everybody who just so happened to be best for the role was light skin? Where have we heard that before? That sounds really familiar, does it not? He went on to say that he acknowledges her concern about having more black folk. And he said, you know, quote, I think that's a really good conversation to have. We've been having that conversation for a really long time. Black Latinos, especially like there's a vocal contingent who talk about the absence of representation for black Latinos. I mean, I happen to be black. I'm not Latino. But like I hear it. I hear it all the time. But if you're doing a movie about Washington Heights, would it not be beneficial to perhaps walk around Washington Heights and take a look at the people who are also walking around Washington Heights and be like, you know what? If we're going to make a movie and call it In the Heights, perhaps, I don't know, we should create a movie that looks something like the people walking around the neighborhood. Is that revolutionary? Apparently so. So the interviewer pushed back and she was like, you know, we wanted to see like Afro Panamanians and Afro Cubans and, and black Dominicans and Chu's response was, yeah, I hear you. And he was like, I hope that this encourages people to tell more stories. Literally. I was like, this is the same thing white folks say whenever there's a complaint about the lack of inclusion. It's like by the book, I hope more people tell stories. We pick the people who were best for the roles. That's a really good conversation to have. It's literally the exact same responses that have been coming from the powers that be over the Friends reunion. I didn't mention the Friends reunion when it came out because I didn't really watch Friends. It was on when I was in high school, but it was about six white people living in New York and I just didn't care. My white classmates loved it. Several of my classmates had the Rachel haircut. Like, I, I get it. It was a cultural phenomenon. But they've done this Friends reunion all these years later. And there weren't many black people on the show. Gabrielle Union had a guest role. She was a black girlfriend, I think to Ross for a while. Again, I didn't watch the show. Is she the reason that he and Rachel got back together? I don't remember. And there's a whole sidebar I could do about the black girlfriend coming on a show and being used as a vehicle to reunite white people in their love. I just read a piece, I think one medium about that recently, but I don't have it in front of me. I say all that to say the... the, the Friends reunion got a lot of critique for its lack of black people. And literally, the responses from the creator of the show are the exact same thing that Chu, the director of In the Heights, is saying here. He's like, we picked the best. I hope other people make stories. Lin-Manuel Miranda, who created In the Heights, also of Hamilton fame, but he jumped in the conversation. I think it was for a Variety Don't quote me on that. He did an interview as well. And he was asked the same thing about representation. And his response was, he said, it's quote and unquote, unfair to put any kind of undue burden on representation. Is it? You go to a whole community and you decide to represent that community in a, a, a big budget stage to film musical. And you think it's unfair To represent the vastness of that community in just a very simple way. It's unfair to expect you not to erase Black people? Really? The film didn't do so well over the weekend. For the feedback that it's getting about the lack of representation, overall, critics have been praising this film. There was a lot of really good buzz about it in the mainstream coverage. But it only did $11 at the box office. And when I saw those numbers, I was like, well, you know, it's also on HBO. So maybe people like me who were not ready to go back to the theater yet, maybe they just like streamed it. Like, are we are we counting those numbers too? And then a friend pointed out, well, you know, A Quiet Place, A Quiet Place just came out as well. And they did a hundred million at the box office. And it was also available for streaming on Paramount Plus, but people showed up to the theater to see A Quiet Place. They didn't show up to see In the Heights, which... I remember having this conversation and I won't go too much into it. Cause I think we talked about it when we did it, but for, for don't waste your pretty, like early on in the conversation before they even started doing auditions and reaching out to people, I was like, look, there's three basic things that I need for this film. Like we have four women as the lead characters. I need at least one of them, at least not just one, but at least one to be visibly Brown. I need somebody else, at least one, To have natural hair that is at least as kinky as mine. Because mine kinks, coils, curls. It depends on which section you get into. Don't give me wavy. Give me coils. I also need somebody who at least reads as a size 10 on camera. At least. If there's going to be a film made about my book, I need someone who is my size. Somebody in this cast is going to look like me. It's one of the things that I often complain about whenever I see films with black women. In this film where I have a say, where I'm an EP, these are the things that I want. And my specific push for that, in addition to like the selfishness of wanting to have representation like me in my work, was also because I acknowledge that TV is a visual medium. I've watched so many shows come out that had potential to be hits and they get dismissed As soon as the commercial airs, because people see the cast and was like, why is everybody light skinned? Why does everybody have wavy hair? Why is the lead biracial? Why are all these women size twos? People look at the commercial. They don't see themselves represented and they tune out. And I was like, let's give this film at least a fighting chance chance. So when people see the commercial, they'll be like, "Oh, okay, I have an entry point here because someone in this cast looks like me." So maybe they don't have my personality, but at least somebody behind the scenes thought enough about like, "Hey, this woman with this look deserves representation. She deserves a story being told, and we're going to tell it." You might not like the story. That's the other half of the battle, but how it looks also essential to winning the war. I don't I don't understand. At this point, Deliberately, because that's what these choices are, deliberately not representing the audience that you want to support this film, you're costing yourself money. You're shooting yourself in the foot. The heights, there's no reason the height should have just done eleven million. And I'm a guess because part of it is white folks ain't all that interested in it. And the audience that you were really hoping that would tap into it, the Latino audience, the black audience, the of color audience, which you were hoping would flock to theaters to support this film, they don't see themselves in it. So why go? You ain't not want to put no black people in your film because you cast, quote, who were best for the roles. They all happen to be light skinned people. And that's not to say that the people they cast weren't talented. I'm sure they are. But you ain't not want to put no black people in your film and no black people showed up to watch your film. That's your fault. It just makes no sense.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price,
1: price Priceline. Remember I told you I reached out to the network because I wanted to talk to the host of High on the Hog, Stephen. Why do I always forget his last name? It starts with an S. What is this man's name? Stephen Satterfield. I love the series. It was a limited series. It was only four episodes. And I was like, I want more episodes. I want a full season of the show. Take me around the world and talk to me about where black folks and their food show up. Fascinating. But he wasn't able to speak. And I was like, I hope that he's bouncing around the world, working on season two. All the good things for him, for this great thing that he has created and shared with us. You know how much I love that documentary. He um, <laughs> He hopped on... Instagram over the weekend I don't know what he was thinking and I was like oh is this why y'all wouldn't let me interview him like is he a loose cannon he may be or y'all were afraid I was gonna ask him about his his white girlfriend because I wasn't I wasn't I don't care black men want to date non-black women as long as you're not disparaging black women to do it I don't care Are there socio-political, economic reasons that I think so many black men percentage wise in comparison to black women? The vast majority, like something like 88 percent of black men marry black women. I say that to say, but he jumped on Instagram this weekend and maybe he was feeling the heat. Maybe, you know, people paying attention to the show have caused them to go uh, look him up. And they were on his Instagram and they saw that he was in a relationship with a woman. He calls her white. He referred to her as, I'm going to quote you this because I don't want to get it wrong. He said, my boo is Canella Vanilla Swirl. Now I saw a picture of her. She, she don't look white to me. She looks like melanin is involved. I don't know from where. I don't know what her ethnicity is. Maybe in her native land or better, her mother or grandmother's native land. Race is a social construct. What we call white here is not what is called white in some other places. I told you all that time I was in Nairobi. And a white man referred to me as white based on my American accent. And I was sitting up there with a whole fro. And I was like, white? I know I can get a little light in the winter. But sir, we are in Nairobi. I've had my son. I don't look no part to even mix. Like, where did you get white? I say that to say race is a social construct. So maybe in the land of her grandmother, she is white. I wouldn't call her that based on the images shared. But but he says, again, my boo is Canela Vanilla Swirl. So he was making this point. About Mildred Loving. Mildred Loving is the black woman who was the center of Loving versus Virginia. It wasn't until 1967 that the Supreme Court ruled that race-based restrictions on marriage violated the Equal Protection Clause. So Stephen was celebrating Loving v. Virginia on its anniversary on June 12th. And he made this post about who Mildred Loving was And he goes on to say that loving V Virginia brings to the center, the love of my life too. my boo. Again, my boo is a Canela vanilla swirl. And he talks about the stigma of interracial dating, how it still persists. And he says, stigma has been my style since I was a child. I don't give a fuck has colored my disposition as melanin does my skin. Plus I do not subscribe to virtue assignments at birth, he continues, folks are so committed to being police that they will check for who I'm sleeping with more closely than my deeds then project their unhappiness on me. Tisk tisk, y'all gotta work on yourself on God. so again, maybe folks were coming for him because he's got this newfound fame with his hit documentary and he's responding to that. I will tell you that the comment section did not go well. It didn't go well at all. Folks were pointing out, they were like, hey, bruh, like, I know you feel like you're doing something revolutionary, but high profile black men dating white women is not revolutionary. It's kind of a stereotype at this point. Some of the nice, and that was among the nicer things that were said. There was a back and forth. Steven was responding to people. It got ugly. I'm not going to go into him dating white women, dating a white woman, like, do you, bruh? I'm going to say this, though. It's very hard being in the public eye. And people start coming at you sometimes over things that you're like, this is a, really an issue, seriously? And because it's people speaking directly to you, adding you, DMing you, tagging you, it seems much bigger to you because the attention is coming at you. I think until he said this, the vast majority of his readers didn't know or care that he was dating a white woman. They were just really proud of him for making this documentary. But because he's responded to it, Now it's become a centered conversation that people are talking about and it's starting with him. And then it's going back to like the long history of black men who are very pro-black, who are very uplifting of the race, but then also happen to date or be married to white women. Like lots of, you know, very pro-black, put my life on the line, live for the people, love the people, not Fred Hampton. And it's always been like this. Oh, like you're so pro-black. You love black. You're pro-blackness in every part of your life except who you share your life in your bed with. That's interesting. You make of it what you will. It's like he's put this conversation out there and now people are like, oh, I'm not watching this film. But now you're out here like, you know, putting your canella Vanilla swirl on a pedestal. And now I'm just like, oh, you lost me. And I feel like that's a kind of a worthy conversation because a lot of black women support a lot of work by black men. And then you start digging and it's like, wait, like you don't even support a black woman. Well, then why am I supporting you? But he's jumped out there. And now the conversation is switched from, oh, this amazing film on Netflix to essentially nigga what? (laughs) Yeah. I still wish him the best. Also wish him a good publicist. The folks at Netflix tried to help. I told you I asked for an interview before this situation and they shut me down. And I was like, really? Because I feel like my platform is exactly, you know, who y'all would want to speak to. Y'all watch and buy if I tell y'all about some good content. Like we talked about Tia's book, we talked about um, Tarana Burke's book, and y'all have gone and bought both. You've you tagged me in pictures, you started book clubs, you started reading, you started emailing me about passages that resonate, which thank you. Please continue to do so. I love it. When y'all really like something, y'all invest financially and your time in it. Y'all want to know about good quality things. And when I share them with you, you, you know, take it and run with it. So I was like, really? I don't want him to come talk to me? But they were trying to help. I want the Netflix publicity team on my team because they shut down the interview. They're like, oh, this could go left. We're going to protect him. That's what you're supposed to do as a publicist. That's your job. Y'all doing the good work over at Netflix. Y'all can't stop people from their Instagram rants. Y'all did good. I want to, I want to shout out, I want to acknowledge the PR team at Netflix. Y'all tried. Y'all tried. Your client went a little left. <sighs> you can save people from outside factors. It's hard to save people from themselves. That's an inside job. Oh, another update. Last week, we talked about Gary Owens going on the Wendy Williams show. And he talked about his wife again. Wendy asked him about his wife. And he did speak about his marriage. He talked about being for the streets. And I said, I hope his wife doesn't respond. She might, she probably will, but I hope she doesn't respond. I hope they can handle these behind the scenes because, again, it's fodder and entertainment for people to comment on or laugh at even. But this is a family's real life. It's not just commentary and it's not just stories. His wife, Kenya, she responded again after seeing his interview on Wendy. It was very lengthy. I'm not going to read it to you just because... I have nothing invested in this back and forth. These two people, at least Kenya. Gary's out here like he don't give a fuck. Kenya is hurt. Kenya is very hurt. And I've seen people say like, oh, she's in her feelings. Like she needs to shut up. A couple things. Yeah, she's in her feelings. It would be weird for her not to be. You're with a man for 23 years. You raised three children together. Your 18-year-old marriage goes south. Your husband allegedly stops handling the bills and is throwing jabs at you on social media yeah you'd be in your feelings too i keep seeing and not just this situation but any situation where people have public breakups especially divorces especially long-term divorces where people be like oh she just needs to move on she just needs to get over it she just needs to get out of her feelings who the fuck are you people you're a human. You're not an icebox. Like that whole like ice cold Andre 3K shit. Like that's for entertainment. That's, that's not real life. Like in real life, people have feelings. And it takes them a while to process them. Some longer than others. So like yeah, she's in her feelings. Because that's completely normal to have feelings about the dissolution of an 18 year marriage, 23 year relationship normal. Also want to say this. I said last week that I wish that they would take this out of the media and back to the lawyers and handle it behind the scenes because it's just fodder. I just said about exactly that. I want to be clear that when I say things like that, I'm not saying that Kenya shouldn't respond. In general, people do not like it When women express their anger or their fear or their disappointment, especially at men and people often want to silence them. And as Kenya pointed out in her first in her first public response to her estranged husband, she was like, I've been silent all these years. Gary Owens is known for making jokes about his family life, his wife, his children, things like that. That's his shtick. That's based on Kenya and the children. He's getting that material from somewhere. In all these years, as Kenya pointed out, you've never heard from me. I let you shape the narrative however you want to shape it. But you walking out here in shirts that say breadwinner while you're not providing for your family because for whatever reason this marriage has fallen apart. Like, she gets a right to say something. If he gets a right to wear a shirt that takes jabs at her, she gets a right to say something. It's one thing if he was saying that, you know, these are my feelings about XYZ. XYZ, his feelings are his feelings. Okay, that's a personal thing. But when you start taking little jabs like that, your wife, estranged or not, has the right to respond. Now, she doesn't have the media access that Gary has. She does have an Instagram account. That's her media access, and she's using it. So if he wants to create a narrative one way, she's well within her rights to counter that. I don't ever wanna make it seem like I'm trying to silence a woman, especially not a black woman. Now, do I wish this whole thing could play out behind the scenes? Yes, and I've stated my reasons why. But if he wants to keep bringing it to the public forefront, She's well within her rights to respond the same way. This whole like, when they go low, you go high. It was a great mantra for Michelle Obama, who was dealing with white folks and their crazy shit when she was in the White House and had to play into a role of a respectable black woman with superior morals and a heart of gold. It's a great PR strategy, and yet it stopped none of the attacks against her. So you could go high, you could go low. At some point, you just need to do whatever helps you sleep better at night. Now, sometimes I do go high and I just let shit go and it's really not that big a deal to me. But sometimes when people get grimy and nasty, sometimes cussing people out is a part of your healing process. That's not what I'm supposed to say as a life coach. I'm not practicing at the moment. But even if I was, I would give the same advice. I'm not saying let it be the knee-jerk reaction. I'm not saying go from zero to 100. But folks that repeatedly show you that they don't understand kindness, silence, grace, humility, and they want to keep coming for your ass, sometimes you just need to meet them where they are. They understand that shit because that's what they do. Sometimes that's what they need. Sometimes that's what you need too. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I wish Gary and Kenya peace. Because the back and forth, whether it's played out in the media or behind the scenes or through the lawyers or counselors, the kids, whatever it is, it's infuriating. So I hope that they can find a resolution to their situation. I've lived that life. I wouldn't wish divorce on on anyone. Most divorced people will say that like you want to find the biggest advocates for like sticking shit out. Talk to divorced people like you don't want to go through that shit if you don't have to. It's just hell on earth. Ugh. I wish them peace. So can we talk about my nerd out weekend? And just to be clear, I am working a social campaign with Tribeca Fest. Talking about the festival on my podcast has absolutely nothing to do with the campaign. I'm really just talking about it because I was in bliss this weekend. As part of the campaign, um, I got access to all of the films for Tribeca at home. So this weekend, I just completely like binged out and literally eat pizza and drink wine while I watched like all sorts of random documentaries as part of the festival. And... I've done Tribeca Festival like a zillion times. When I was in New York, I always made a point to catch as many films as I could. But it's easier now since all I have to do is sit at my desk and I can watch as much as I want. But like I nerded all the way out. I watched this documentary and there's tons of films, but I love documentaries. Y'all know that. Um, But I watched this documentary on Van Jones and I'm not going to give away spoilers for anything. So you don't have to like tune out now. And you know, Van Jones is a very, what's the word? divisive divisive figure black folks ain't that fond of him white folks ain't that fond of him the left doesn't really like him the right doesn't really like him his main platform is is prison reform and he does based on the documentary genuinely try to unite people with common interests to join forces to fight the same issue he tries really, really hard for that. And it's not very welcome because it seems like he's towing the line and people are just like, you got to choose a side. And he refuses. The documentary shows that very clearly. And at one point in the documentary, I actually felt really bad for him. In the documentary, I think he's, it's not, it's not explicitly said, but it's heavily implied that he's either separated or shortly post divorce. Because at one point, he's in a home. In another point, he's in a one-bedroom apartment that doesn't have a lot of furniture. But don't feel bad for him. Like, he's in a one-bedroom apartment in a high-rise overlooking Central Park. I think he's somewhere around Columbus Circle. It's a, beautiful, it's a beautiful view. He also sleeps. They show his bed. He has a Superman comforter. Like, this gigantic image of Superman. White Superman. Like, it's something that I would expect to see in, like, the room of an eight-year-old boy. And I was like, this is, this, it's an interesting detail about Van Jones. But one of the themes of the documentary is how everyone harps on him and everything he does is excessively criticized. And at one point, he starts reading some of the messages that he gets and he talks about how much he doesn't care. And it's so obvious how much he wants to be liked. And I was like, yo, he's really out here trying and it's just not going well. And I felt bad for him. And then the documentary continues for another 30 minutes and he pissed me off. He did something that was so left field. And there's an older black woman in the film who succinctly sums up Van Jones as, what does she call him? Something like Mr. Bojangles trying to get approval from white folks. And that might be like an accurate summation. It was so terrible what he did. I was like, like when he said it, I gasped. Because I didn't remember the story. I don't hugely pay attention to Van Jones. And I was like, are you serious? There was another documentary on Jackie Collins. If you are of a certain age, you either went to the store and bought Jackie Collins books or your mother did and you picked them up as they were laying around the house. That's my story. There's a wonderful documentary on her life as an author and you know, I didn't know until this documentary, like literally until Saturday morning, that Jackie Collins and Joan Collins were sisters. Joan Collins from Dynasty I had absolutely no idea they were sisters. I mean, Collins is a common last name. I didn't I just never put two and two together. And I was like, wait, what? But it talks about sort of the sibling rivalry between the sisters that the media picked up on and they constantly denied. But then people behind the scenes were like, yeah, there was a rivalry. It wasn't as deep as they made it out to be, but it was a rivalry. There were some things done and said. You know, they're sisters. Sisters have issues. But riveting. Like her books used to do numbers like album sales. And I guess because I grew up in an era where women were openly talking about sex. like Like in Jackie Collins books and other books. Like Waiting to Exhale or even in music. But just in culture. You know, I grew up watching The Cosby Show and Rudy and I are around the same age, maybe a few months apart. But I remember as a young girl watching Rudy talk to Bud and like basically telling him that his misogynistic brother didn't know shit about women or girls. But I was just used to, you know, women being outspoken about their wants, their needs across the board, including sex. So it just seems very normal to me that a woman would be writing novels where the women wanted to have sex and enjoyed it. And I mean, I know things were not always that way, but I had no idea that the turn happened in my lifetime. But I'm watching this documentary and they're showing the critiques of of Jackie Collins at the height of her fame. And the biggest critique was, you know, these women are having sex like men. They're demanding sex. They're saying, I want to have sex. They're demanding to be sexually satisfied. And that was just so enraging to people that, like, women wanted to have sex. And I was like, but wait, like, all these men are having sex. Like, they don't want the women to be willing? They want to rape them? Like, what's happening here? Like, you want to coerce them? You want to convince them? You don't want an enthusiastic yes from a woman? You want her to not want to have sex with you when you want to have sex? I don't understand. I don't understand it because it didn't make sense. It doesn't. A lot of that actually still persists now, thirty years later. It didn't make sense then. It doesn't make sense now. Like you want to have sex and you're mad at women for also wanting to have sex with you. I, I don't understand. Make it make it make sense. There was a kids documentary. Do you remember kids in the nineties? It came out in nineteen ninety five. I had to have my mom drive me to Georgetown because kids was a because kids wasn't being shown. And mainstream theaters. So Georgetown in D.C. when I was growing up was kind of like whatever your artsy district is in your, your local city. And not like artsy like hipsters, but like artsy. The place that was artsy before gentrification happened. That's what Georgetown was in D.C. Like it was, it was a bunch of stores that catered to people who went to raves or like to dye their hair blue. Or art shops, candle shops. It was really cute before it was, you know, turned into a mall like Williamsburg or Soho or what's happening in DTLA right now. But my mom drove me downtown and we went to see kids together. She didn't have a problem with me seeing it. And I want to say she like read up on it and was like, oh, I don't know if you can watch this like solo because this is a lot. And I remember watching the film. It's a really small theater. But I remember like... I would say at least like four or five people walked out of the theater, which was a common occurrence. Like if you read the news reports from that time, they were like, people would get up and walk out the film because it was just so provocative. And it was like, there are literal literal kids on screen seeming to have sex. And I'm not sure these people are legal. And I feel like I'm watching kiddie porn. Because I was a teenager at the time. It just sort of seemed like, you know, some things that happened in extreme version. Of things that, you know, I'd I'd seen before. It wasn't really that shocking to me. Because people were like, oh my God, they're like 12-year-olds smoking weed. And I'm like, is that not normal? I didn't know that was not normal. And just to be clear, I went to school with, like, white kids. So this, like, the 12-year-old smoking weed, yeah. Kids was kind of tame in some ways. Because, like, I had a classmate who was addicted to heroin. And I went to a prom party and there were, like, coke lines on the table. My black friends in high school, even in college, never did more than weed. My white friends... They did anything. So I remember kids from, from back in the day and I remember all the controversy about it. But this documentary goes into where are the kids 20 years later. So, like, some people had like really big come ups off it. Like, Rosario Dawson, I want to say that was her first film. And then, you know, Rosario has gone on to be like, you know, Rosario Dawson. We know who she is. And Chloe. The odd white girl. She's created a whole career on being this like very 90s girl with these outsider roles. Like she's wrote it for 30 years. Um, She became huge off of that film. But there were obviously other actors in the film. Neither one of them were the stars of the film. The guy that played Telly, which is the lead in the film... He was the junkie on the wire, which I never put two and two together until I was watching this film. And not even watching the film, researched the film afterward, because the film doesn't really talk about Telly. I had to research after to be like, well, wait, they didn't mention him. What happened to him? He ended up playing the junkie on the wire, not Bubbles, the white dude. But there were two other actors that were like really big in the film. um, Telly's best friend and then like the black dude who was all over the place in the film. They had unfortunate endings and they talked to some of the other people that worked in the film Like, literally worked in the film. Like, it wasn't a documentary the way a lot of people thought it was. Like, there was a full script. The kids were acting. The guy who wrote the script was 19. I think most of the kids in the film were 16, 17. And the guy hung out with them for, like, a year. He picked up, like, their language and the things that they did. And he created a story out of that. But those kids got paid $2,000 each. Somewhere in that range. For the whole damn film. And they talked about how the guy, the director, Larry somebody or another, and he was like in his late 50s and he started hanging out with them at the skate parks and they were all like, who's this old dude? And he would dress like them. He would buy them weed in exchange for them letting him hang out with him and then take pictures of them. So he did this film that cost him 1.5 mil. The film comes out. It's an international conversation, international sensation. It makes $20 million. And in addition, when he was hanging out with the kids, he used to take pictures of them all the time. And so once the film took off, he started selling portraits of the kids. Like he would do galleries and everything. He started selling portraits of the kids from anywhere from 2,000 to 3,500, 4,000 a pop. So he made a shit ton of money off of these kids. And they got paid less than he was making for one photograph of them. That's just the highlights of that film. Like, there's so much more. There's so much more. It was crazy. And I watched, like, five other films. And again, you can watch all of this stuff, no matter where you are, as a part of the Tribeca Festival for this at-home pass. And I'm not selling it to you. I'm just telling you that's how I was able to watch it. I watched, like, five more documentaries. I'm going to tell you about one more because I know it's the one that everybody's interested in. I saw the Anthony Bourdain film. And again, no spoilers, Um, I'll give you a review. I tried to watch it on Saturday. I pulled it up and there was a bunch of commercials before the film airs and then it fades from black and then a picture of Anthony Bourdain's face popped up and I just started crying. I just started crying and I was like, okay, I'm not, I can't, I can't watch this today. So I gave myself 24 hours. I tried again on Sunday and I was like, you know what? I got my tissues. I haven't had any wine yet, so I'm not emotional. I'm going to just power through it and have my bottle of water. I will cry till I get a headache. I'm like a child that way. But I was like, let's power through it and get it done. It is beautifully done. It's the good goodbye that I think fans needed and wanted for Anthony Bourdain are in it. Lots of his friends participate in the film and they talk about him with humanity. They don't just tell the good stories. They don't just tell the bad stories, but they give you a sense of the full person that Anthony Bourdain was on and off camera. They talked to one of his ex-wives. He had started filming himself before his first book came out, Kitchen Confidential, which came out in 1999. So the film has footage of literally the moment his whole life changed. So his book comes out It hits the New York Times bestsellers list, and the film has the footage of him getting the call, being like, hey, your book just landed on the New York Times. It has footage of him talking about, like, yeah, I got this call. I'm going on Oprah. It's like he can't even believe it. But it follows his journey. The first reiteration of the TV show, there were actually three. At the time, producers, the husband and wife team, they pitched Anthony this show, this travel show, about food. He had a passport, but he'd only been to like one country. Like he was a chef. He owned a restaurant. Like he had to be in the restaurant. Like he didn't have time to travel. It's this fascinating roller coaster journey of him becoming this cultural phenomenon. And it happens over the course of 20 some odd years. He's just such a fascinating man. And, and they point out that the key to his success, I don't know success is the right word, why the show was such a hit and why he was so beloved by audiences, even though sometimes, at least I let me speak for myself, I would think like I want to travel. I want to go somewhere. And I would think of like, well, where should I go? And sometimes I would just sit down and I would start scrolling through old episodes of his show. And I would be like, hmm, Istanbul looks interesting. You know, I'd watch him walk around and eat different things and talk to different people. But as much as I'd be watching him, I'd be watching what was going on in the background. Like, I'd be looking at the people and the architecture. And then I'd go, like, research on Pinterest. And I'd be like, well, what's going on in Istanbul? Like, what does it look like? And then I'd read articles about it. And that's how I'd make my decisions sometimes on, like, where to travel. And the producers of the show point out, and they were like, the secret to its success wasn't Tony being a tour guide and saying this is where you should come and this is where you should eat. It was you watching someone travel and be curious about the world they were encountering. He was like, that's why it resonated because you watched the show and you felt like you were traveling too. Like you were meeting interesting people and you were exploring different countrysides and you were learning different history and you were seeing the world through a traveler's eyes. So it felt like you were on the trip with him. And I was like, oh, shit, that's exactly what it was. The documentary does speculate on why he ended his life. They also leave it open to interpretation. Like there were some things that happened leading up to it. Apparently, like the last two years of the show, he was unbearable behind the scenes. He wasn't such a joy to work with. So the documentary does get into some of that, but they speculate on, on what happened and why, but they also leave it open-ended, which I thought was very respectful. And they were like, ultimately, like he's the only person that knows and he didn't leave a note and he's gone. So it just leads us to, to guess. They also talk about the real life impact on his friend circle, which I thought was really, really important. As much as the fans like me, like mourned, And, and, you know, loved him. I remember driving through Charleston a couple years ago, and I saw this mural of Anthony Bourdain. And, like, I hit a U. It wasn't immediate because I wasn't trying to, like, kill myself or hit anybody. But I hit a U in traffic and circled right back around and got out my car, like, super giddy to take a picture with an Anthony Bourdain mural. Like, he brought so much joy to my life. and, And seeing that mural brought so much joy to my life, like, I felt really, really strongly about him. But I'm a fan. You know, like, I never met him. I never encountered him. I never saw him speak in person. I didn't know him, obviously, but I felt so close to him through the gifts that he shared and the way that he changed my approach to literally seeing the world. But his friends, like, as expected, like, them people have messed up. Once they started talking about, like, how he ended, like, everybody lost it. Everybody they interviewed just lost it or went ice cold. Same difference. Going ice cold is a different way of losing it. It's just a different coping mechanism than most people are used to. But yeah, it was everything that I wanted the documentary to be. Unfortunately, it's not available to view unless you already have tickets. I know it's going to theaters. I imagine it will also be on a streaming service at some point. So Tribeca... So Tribeca Festival put a cap on how many people would be able to view it. But it's going to also be at other festivals, I think. I know someone sent me a link for a screening that's happening in L.A. I want to say like the minimum ticket was like $75, which I was willing to pay. Like it was like pizza and a glass of wine on a rooftop on a large screen watching this Anthony Bourdain flick. And I was like, sure, all right, because that's how bad I want to see it. But it is everything that as a fan, I hoped it would be. And so, like, I guess it's fair to say that I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did because parts of it are absolutely wonderful. It's, like, the first, I would say, like, hour and a half of, like, his rise to fame and then, like, the creation of the show and then he starts wandering around all these different places and you're seeing the -the behind-the-scenes footage. It's, like, a hundred episodes of parts unknown all rolled into one with Bourdain's best and brightest quips and showing him writing behind the scenes because in the beginning someone else wrote his voiceovers and he was like that doesn't sound like me and then he started writing them himself above everything else he thought of himself as a writer maybe the first hour and 15 minutes hour and a half are just absolutely delicious all the travel all the quips all the behind the scenes of Bourdain it's it was really really good and then the last 30 minutes are are absolutely heartbreaking losing anthony bourdain was just like a huge huge loss to humanity i love that white man like i knew him may he rest in peace so that is the episode for this week if you have not picked up your merch for don't waste your pretty please do it is available on my website demetria l lucas and if you need some ratchet and respectable in your life between now and And Friday, please follow me on social media at Demetria L. Lucas on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I think that's everything. And if it's not, we'll talk about it on Friday. All right. Talk soon. Bye. Today's
0: episode is brought to you by Angie.